Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Power, a She-Ra companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. Welcome to episode two of the podcast. Uh, and we've got a little bit of housekeeping to take care of, just a little bit here at the start. Uh, we are going to do a little bit of a format change for the uh, rest of the show, I think. Yeah, we're going to try and, I think, keep it a little more focused on the actual uh, discussion and analysis. So we're going to kind of uh, trim down the actual episode recap itself to kind of just broad strokes um, so that we have a little more time to focus down um, sort of the story beats that happen before we get into the spoiler section. Yeah, I think uh, this is not... A recap show. It is very we. I, I was very deliberate that I did not call it a recap show. This is a companion show. This is all about sort of diving deep and discussing things, and not necessarily just going beat for beat uh, by the episode. Because I feel like not only will that take a lot more time, it also might be a little bit less interesting. Uh, but this way, we can sort of get our broad ideas and, and broad strokes, sort of read on the episode before we really get deep into it exactly exactly so uh for this episode we will be covering uh season one episode three which is uh just called raz this is a this is an interesting episode it has a lot of work to do with its uh the the follow-up to the sword and also introducing a, a pretty important uh supporting cast member right uh, yes, we get introduced to uh, one of the one of the few um, one of the few animal companions in a show that actually I think deserves to be there. It's it's very rare, but yeah, it's we we are introduced. So so this so this sh- uh, this episode, I would say it's it's a, for one, it's a pretty funny one. There's lots of very good um, glimmer faces. Uh, specifically in this episode the glimmer faces are exquisite especially especially when uh her and uh her and her mom uh meet up uh there's also some some good drama stuff in the horde that we will get to in a bit but the the big the big two characters that uh that make their day well okay there are three characters that make their debut in this episode and they're all very strong debuts uh the first one is swiftwind who is Shiraz loyal steed. The second one is Madame Raz, who is a weird old lady who lives in the woods. And the third one is our uh, main antagonist, the the Emperor of the Horde, Lord Hordak. Yes, the the enigmatic goth man who runs the show behind the scenes. He's very goth. Is the thing about him? I think we should start with Swiftwind because. He is a very inter- he he occupies a very interesting place in this show. So in the original Shira show, Swiftwind was of course the the animal companion. Uh, he transformed between normal horse and winged unicorn. In this show, they do not have him as a normal horse for very long, and he does not transform between them. He is always just uh, the winged unicorn. That's interesting. I didn't actually know that he was like. He kind of had a catcher situation where he kind of go back and forth like that. Yeah, it was just like it was just like uh, He Man's battle cat because you know it's just they just copied and pasted the same group of characters basically. 
But uh, yeah, Swift Wind, he brings in just in terms of action scenes if we're talking purely on that he brings a lot of verticality to it he he he, we can now take to the skies exactly and um he also he also brings a very important element uh to the combat which is uh when you have a like three-quarter ton animal um flying at you um hoof first that's gonna do a little bit of damage so Really good, uh, really good DPS on Swiftwind. He hits very hard. I mean, he's he's used a lot for comedy in this episode, especially right after he turns into his into mm. his magical form, where he just completely flips out. That is something that will continue on in the future. Uh, the the comedy that is not necessarily flipping out. Well, <laughs> a little column A, a little column B. Yeah. But uh, Swiftwind, you know, he, he that's the one of the big... Unfortunately, as, as of right now, there's not a lot to say about him because he's just been introduced and he, we haven't really gotten to a lot of the aspects of him that make his character really interesting. I, I, will, I will take a moment to talk about his design, though, because I think it's actually very strong. I think, like, they made a couple of really interesting choices with Swiftwind and uh, one of them that I actually really like, um, just from an animation perspective, is the way they did uh, Swiftwind's wings. Um, you'll notice that the back of his wings are a consistent um, sort of periwinkle color, um, and the actual um, inside of the wings are the uh the the sort of classic rainbow and i um i thought that was a really interesting um like visual touch um both to look at but also it's very much like uh, a clever way of making it so you don't have to (laughs) deal with quite so much uh detail work when you're actually animating it yeah i think his his wings look really nice uh the the color the color palette is is quite pleasing as well it's very warm yeah i i do really like the kind of um warm focus that um that is usually given um to the the more magical main cast it's uh like a lot of them have kind of a rainbow motif going on but it's always shifted more to the warm palette which is really pleasant to look at and it also just sort of you know it follows along some some fairly like standard color theory like warm colors is a little more inviting and friendly and it uh it works really well i think yeah i I also think that so we'll 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 leave swiftwind here for now uh he he, he's the first stop on our little trip here and we'll don't worry he'll he will he will be back later yes he will he will be back um in uh in full force there is more to this horse than meets the eye Uh, just like transformers it's true so we, we uh, the next topic that I think we wanted to really hone in on, and I think these are some of the best scenes in the entire episode here, uh, are the ones in the Fright Zone uh, with Catra, Shadow Weaver, and Hordak. Big time, especially like uh, the, the next stop on our journey, which is the locker room. Oh boy. So yeah, the, the, we, we, uh, the first time we see Catra in this episode, she's sort of sitting apart from the rest of her unit while they're like, did you see that crazy sword princess who was like 12 feet tall and wrecked us like we were nothing? What is happening out there? And she's just sort of being very aloof and like, eh, she, she who cares? She's just some big lady with a sword. She's not that strong or buff or beautiful or attractive, never mind. I'm not thinking about her at all. 
Yeah, not even a little bit. Don't worry about it. Anyway, she's not cool. Don't say she is. She's not cool at all. I'm cool. I'm the cool one. It's me. But the, yeah, this this scene is very interesting uh, because it's it's sort of like we didn't get a lot of Katra interacting with the rest of the Horde at large in the first two episodes. It was just with Adora. Yeah, it was kind of... Um... It was interesting because I feel like it was framed very um, deliberately in that it was kind of Katra Dora um, against the rest of the Horde, not necessarily in opposition to, but like in isolation from, like they kind of were in their own universe, essentially. Um, and now that Katra is being forced to kind of engage with the Horde as an organization on the whole, there's like that um, pretty... I feel like discomfort and feeling of like, like definitely being the odd man out. You know what I mean? Right. Everyone else here has rapport. They have their own existing relationships, but Katra really only had Adora, it seems. And no one else seems to like her very much in, in the horde. Yeah, no, she seems to like, she seems to definitely be, on the outside of these social circles a lot, and uh, Lonnie actually makes a pretty interesting uh, comment uh, towards the end of this scene, where she's like, you know, Adora isn't here to protect you anymore, you know, take it easy. And uh, I think that that touches on some interesting dynamics that Catra actually has with the rest of these characters. Like, you know, they don't necessarily want her around, and the only reason that they've tolerated her is because Adora has, you know, either their favor or favor with higher-ups in a way that they weren't willing to press that. Right. I mean, she she was their, uh, seemed like their squad leader even before she was promoted to mm -hmm. force captain. So it might just be an aspect of seniority, but also Adora is just more of a people person than Katra is. That's just a simple fact. Well, you you got me there. She uh she could she could stand to be a little more personable. We'll we'll see if that if that ends up changing. <laughs> we will see. But yeah, the, the 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 um the comment that Lonnie makes at the end about Adora not being there to protect her sort of leans in, leads into the next time we see Catra. Yes. Which is in the middle of the episode. It cuts back to her in the like barracks yes and suddenly all of that uh aloofness and the confidence and the you know acting like she's above it and above adora and above you know shira and whatnot like as if it's it's just boring and, and beneath her and not worth talking about that just evaporates instantly it's just gone She's she's uh, she's alone for a moment uh, with her thoughts and lashes out pretty uh, pretty harshly at the Adora's cot, which, uh, if we'll remember in the first episode, she also seemed to to sleep on at the foot at the foot of Adora's bed. She was she was always sleeping there. Really, it was more both of their beds in practice, and it's I think. It touches on um, uh, some symbolism there, I feel like. Katra is kind of... As much as she is trying to hurt, I guess in this case, the memory of Adora, she is just as much hurting herself. 
uh, because this is her space just as much as it was Adora's. Yeah, they shared it uh, all their lives, it seems, because those drawings, they look like they were done... By Catra. Either by... Yeah, by Catra, and also by a much younger Catra. Um, and it is, it is interesting, there is a moment after she after she lashes at the wall and uh, defaces the Adora drawing that she pauses for a moment before continuing, and I think that it is a very sort of like there there's a lot in that pause, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion in this scene. Um and it really comes to a head, I think, with that moment of just like realizing that realizing what she's doing and also realizing that she really is gone, that she's not that she really isn't here anymore. And you know, she's probably not coming back yeah it, it, it's like it just hits her then you know we, we saw her walk away from from adora at the end of the sword part two but it, it does seem like that she was not really absorbing what had happened until that very moment a pretty large part of her um was still very much holding out hope that she would come to her senses that adora would you know of her own volition come back to the horde and come back to her specifically but you know the more time passes the less realistic that seems and i think yeah it definitely all came to a head and became just a little bit too real for her in that moment speaking of adora i think we should hit on her storyline a little bit here because there are it's the beginning of a character arc right there's not a lot to talk about right now but there's a lot of stuff that is being set up here and a lot of stuff being established about dora and she-ra in particular that's a good um that's a good place to go with this i like i think it's it's interesting how um they start exploring sort of her relationship to she-ra because we've kind of already been introduced to this concept that she-ra is a separate entity a little bit from Adora. You know, she's kind of this magical being that inhabits the sword. You know, she's uh, she can kind of take over a little bit when Adora is actually um, transformed into She-Ra. And she's, um, she's kind of feeling a little bit alienated about it, I think. There's no real... There's no one she can talk to about this. No one else is experiencing this. She can't go back to the Horde. Uh, she gets, like, run out of Bright Moon because of a horse-related misunderstanding. We've all had horse-related oh, misunderstandings. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But, um, and then and then she meets Madame Raz out in the woods. And I think last episode I was, I was talking about the, the stellar voice cast for the show. And I think the only, the only, the weakest link in it, and that's not even a particularly major link, but the weakest link in the voice cast is, um... Great Delisle as she she has two major roles in this. She voices Raz and she also voices this bright moon general who shows up from time to time. And uh those two are of course encompassing um uh Great Delisle's like entire breadth of of character voices a little bit, you know, uh vaguely eastern european and just her voice. Yeah, whatever I don't like, I mean, Great Delisle has done some stuff in the past. She seems like kind of a, I don't know, put, putting, putting all of that aside, she's not a particularly impressive voice actress, I don't think. I've never thought she's had great range. 
I've never thought she. I I've, I can't real. I'm. I struggle to think of a lot of outstanding performances of hers. The closest I can come up with is Azula. I think that's probably her best and most defining role. Everything else is just very by the books, very sort of at a just resting at a seven and never really moving. I feel like she is probably of what I guess you would consider like the big name VAs. I feel like um, Delisle definitely has like the weakest emotional acting. The, it, it's It all kind of hits like a very samey emotional note um, for each character that she kind of inhabits. Um, Azula's a decent exception, um, but I think even Azula kind of falls into that um, realm a little bit sometimes. Yeah, there's, there. I I felt as though Azula often had stronger emotions as a character than what she could portray. Yeah. Uh, but in this show, they sort of avoid that by casting her as the most sort of cartoonish and and wacky uh character of. Yeah, they definitely avoided that, and like, um, I think that there are moments in the episode that you do get actually a fairly decent emotional read um, from her performance, but I think that that's kind of more playing to um, Delisle's strengths a little bit in that, like, it's a very reserved emotional um, response. It's not like... It's also not a um, negative emotional um, performance, which I think is, again, that's that's another part of it. I think that she kind of struggles on portraying, like bigger more negative emotions i think that you know having raz be like the kind of soft-spoken old woods grandma who has like a reasonable amount of like emotional depth for um how she's interacting with adora here um but it's all it's all kind of muted and understated in the sense that it's not like emotions that she's processing in the moment it's more emotions that she's she's seen maybe not adora but somebody named mara before and this is all kind of old stuff um for her a little bit let's actually talk about some of the stuff that she and adora do in this episode because nominally uh it seems that she's very she's first she confuses adora for someone Mm -hmm. named mara and then says, we're going to go pick berries. And apparently the best place to pick berries in the Whispering Woods is a towering ancient monolith. I mean, where else are you going to go pick berries? She, like, park... Madame Raz! The thing that you got to understand about Madame Raz is she's got jukes, she's got parkour, she's very yeah, active she, she is, for her she age. She is capital F fit. Like, she, she is she's a powerful individual. She scales this thing vertically... In about four seconds... I think she just walks up it. I don't even think she climbs. She she's like, you know that thing that um that you do when you're like ten years old and you're going up the stairs on all fours. That's how she climbs the tower. She does some sweet flips later in the episode. Some neat tricks. I think Madame Raz should be put into the Tony Hawk Pro Skater uh, remakes. So someone needs to get a 3D model of Raz and put it in the um in in a skate three. Oh, you know what you're right it, it, it has to be skate three because that's the one with all the all the chaos in it that's one where you can really oh, break yeah. reality 
That seems more Madame Raz's speed. Yeah, that's 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 a little bit more right up her alley. Clipping through the ground and launching a dumpster at Mach five into the sky. Yeah. I mean you gotta you gotta take care of Lukey, you know. He's he's always hiding. Gotta get him. He's always hiding. Yeah, and, and Madame Raz says a lot of weird things in this episode. Um specifically one that sticks out the most is how apparently the stars are gone. Yeah, like they apparently the stars there used to be stars and uh some somebody's stolen all the dang stars. Somebody's got to get those stars back. No idea who stole the stars, why they're gone, what's going on there, but there were stars and they're not. And also Adora knows what they are even though no one else seems to because they don't exist. They're, they aren't here. Yeah, that's actually, that's a good point. Yeah, she um she has memories of the stars, even. Primal baby memories. The, the, most, the most confusing kind of memory, really. There's also a couple other interesting things uh, that Raz says. I think um, one is definitely that the... Um, the uh, the thing about Mara, this mysterious person named Mara, who uh, presumably uh, looks very similar to uh, to Adora here, but she also kind of she has a moment where she realizes, like she she knows that she is not Mara, like she knows that this is not Mara at all, that specifically this isn't uh, the right time, and I think that was a very interesting thing for her to say. She she sort of wobbles between goofy old lady who's living in the woods and has imaginary friends and also then, like, saying a lot of stuff that has a lot of big implications and not no real answers. You're not going to get any answers out of Madame Raz for the most part. Definitely not. She is she's not the person who's going to spell it out for you. She's a little bit more of a trickster than that, but she does spell out one thing for Adora though, uh, and that is that the princesses used to protect the planet, but now they have all retreated into their respective territories. Yes. Which I thought was very interesting. So, it's it does it tells us a little bit about um I guess the 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 supposed threat of the princesses to the horde being uh, maybe slightly overstated to the uh, the cadets there, and it also kind of it makes sense when you see Raz uh, take Adora to the edge of the Whispering Woods that's kind of been fern gullied uh, a little bit, and all the trees have been taken down, and um, you start to see kind of the impact that, you know, oh, the Rebellion really hasn't been doing its job very well. There doesn't seem to be all that much of a Rebellion. They're all situated in their own separate strongholds, and they don't seem to be pushing back much at all. They're relying, they seem to be relying on the woods as a sort of natural barrier to keep the Horde out, but they're working on that barrier, and they will eventually get through. Yeah, it's... It's uh it seems like it's only a matter of time. So let's let's jump back to the fright zone for a little bit here, uh, to talk about Shadow Weaver. Uh yes. So Shadow Weaver in this episode, we, we finally get to see a little bit more of her sort of style of 
manipulation, her style of like brow emotional browbeating. Uh, she uses magic to sort of illusorily make herself bigger and taller and yeah a lot of a lot of shadowy clouds a lot of uh breaking of light bulbs a lot of voice modulation uh really the whole nine yards um when it comes to uh prestidigitation she she has cultivated a very intimidating image uh very purposefully yes She's got the mask, she's got the shadows, she's got the big billowing hair and the cloak. She wants to be scary. Um, and it seems like she is very scary to Katra at times. Um, she definitely seems like she intimidates uh, everyone who is her underling. However... we Later in the episode, at the very end, in fact, we finally get to meet Hordak, who was only spoken of in The Sword. And it seems... That for all of Shadow Weaver's bluster and seemingly uh, empty gestures of power, Hordak is the one who calls all of the shots, and he is not affected by any of this at all. No, yeah, he seems actually um, like pretty nonplussed about it. Like he is Shadow Shadow Weaver is trying to impress on Katra how how horrible her failure was, and how they need to. Uh, Im- you know, spend every resource available to get Adora back. Meanwhile, Hordak seems to not be that interested in it. He's just kind of like, well, you have Katra, you have other cadets, you know, business as usual, just pick another one. Um, Shadow Weaver does not like this idea. Um, apparently, Adora is the only viable candidate, but Hordak's like, well, that's not my problem. You should have done better. You know, it kind of it kind of backfires pretty hard. And there's actually a bit where Katra is actually like trying really hard not to laugh in front of this very scary goth man, um, because of course Shadow Weaver is kind of getting owned a little bit. Yeah, she's just getting dressed down for the first time that Katra has probably seen, because for so long Shadow Weaver is this sort of like untouchable presence that is is always going to be right there. She's going to be right there and then we you just see hordak effortlessly like break break all of that illusion and just lay her flat and just say no this is we don't need to get adora back it's just one cadet appoint a new force captain and if you aren't satisfied with catcher's performance well that seems like more your fault than hers yeah it's um it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting reveal for hordak i think um because you get that angle of the um you get the dressing down of shadow weaver and the introduction of the concept that she is not as all-powerful as she seems but it also introduces this idea of hordak being like the guy the guy with uh the plan who is who is far more concerned with the broad strokes than he necessarily is with the individual details like for him a soldier is a soldier he doesn't seem to care who gets the job done as long as it gets finished and shadow weaver's a little more particular about it right he is sort of she's the middle manager she's the one who is sort of actually there managing and training all of these cadets he is a lot seems to be a lot more focused on the big picture. He's he is sitting here in his big throne in his big goth throne room with his weird his weird little devil baby and just sort of doling out promotions whenever someone brings a problem to him. 
he isn't too worried about all of this stuff, as long as you're generally making progress. Yeah, he seems like... Um, something I think that is very visually interesting, actually, is when you get into the throne room, he's nowhere to be seen. You know, he's got this very big, imposing throne with, like, a bunch of steps leading up to it, and it's all lit fancy, and he's just not there. They actually, they they ascend um, the stairs, you know, Catcher and Shadow Weaver, and they have to go behind the throne into this shadowy back corner where he's kind of just working away on some machinery. Like, he's, he's kind of lost in his own little world. And I think that's some interesting symbolism. It kind of implies that Kordak isn't really the hands-on management type. He's kind of got his own stuff he's working on. He kind of just leaves everything else up to his middle management. Right, he's he is the he is the enigmatic emperor of the horde, but that doesn't mean he's going to like talk to anybody or do anything himself. He has people for that. Um and we 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 get a little bit yeah, we get a little bit more insight into the how the Horde works and the dynamics between a lot of their leadership. We also get a little bit of Queen Angela in this we episode. Do. And I think there's a very interesting parallel directly drawn between Angela and Shadow Weaver as these sort of mother figures. Yeah, we actually we, we get we get a lot of interesting interesting stuff um between them i think both visually and like definitely with with their character treatments um especially since in this episode you have kind of both of these uh, maternal figures like charges um have both uh failed them or or disappointed them in some way you know glimmer has just come back um from slipping out of the castle um without permission who you know, worried everyone's sick, who comes back passing out, essentially, like, as she walks up uh, the big spindly bridge, and, you know, the the parallels and the differences, I think, are really critical between the way in which um, uh, Angela and Shadow Weaver handle things and also how they're framed. I think there's a really interesting... Uh, moment uh, between Shadow Weaver and Catra in the barracks there, where Shadow Weaver like corrects Catra's posture with her hands very sort of precisely and delicately. Oh yeah, that that's that stuck out to me quite a bit as, as she just sort of like tilts her, just grabs her chin and just like tilts it forward slightly to make her you know stand up straight, um, which is like. Shadow Weaver is extremely the micromanagement type. She's very harsh. She very harshly punishes failure because she invests so much into her wards that it's like if they fail, she fails basically. Exactly. It's almost a little bit like Shadow Weaver is 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 living through them a little bit. Meanwhile, Angela's first priority is like keeping Glimmer safe. As soon as as soon as Glimmer starts to like pass out, she she completely drops the like stern mother act and just flies her right up. Oh yeah, like zero hesitation. Just ever, like the entire thing is dropped, she immediately just grabs her and flies her up to the runestone. It's like and even afterwards when Glimmer is like 
feeling a bit better after, you know, however long it takes for a magic stone to recharge you. Even then, she's, like, she's got a fairly, like, soft, like, reassuring, like, voicial tonation to her, and she's, like, you know, she's, like, you know, don't think you're off the hook for this, but, like, I'm glad you're feeling better, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting how, how much of a, like, complete 180 that is, um, from Shadow Weaver's, uh, parenting methods. But it's not like there's no conflict with Angela either, because Glimmer is, is sort of chafing under this. She's very impatient to, to show off She-Ra and, like, at the expense of explaining herself, she does not explain anything to Angela about why there might be a, a horrid soldier in Brightmoon. She's just like, no, 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 we'll, we'll start with She-Ra and work our way down from there. And I think a lot of that conflict comes from a lack of trust on, on Angela's part. Angela has no... Uh, she doesn't hold a lot of trust in 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 her mind um, for Glimmer's judgments and, and decision-making. Um, you know, for her, she's still, you know, she's still her baby. She's still a little child and you can't really trust her to be out on her own and whatever. So, you know, naturally Glimmer is going to kind of not be willing to just sit down and explain to her what's going on. No, she feels like she needs to show her, like, proof that she can be trusted. And she's very eager, over-eager to show that proof, and it almost, it almost uh, really messes her up. Kind of backfires spectacularly a little bit. But that, that lack of trust is the, the sort of common thread between those two, I think. It's for very different reasons, but they both share a similar sort of, like, lack of faith in their protégés, right? There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of similarities, I think, in the ways that they in the ways that they they express um their their lack of trust as well in that like they they feel like they need to be um more in control more in the driver's seat of of uh, glimmer and catcher's lives respectively right shadow weaver makes herself real big puts on a scary magic show and says we're gonna take you to hordak he's gonna sort you out angela on the other hand gives Glimmer, like, a very public dressing down in the court, right? Yeah, almost actually kind of the visual reverse, kind of a shot reverse shot in this kind of situation where it's like, you know, uh, Shadow Weaver is appealing to the higher power and taking uh, Katra to this very secluded, you know, back of the throne room room to uh to receive her judgment while you know the the royal court of bright moon it's just everything is on display for all to see like the, not even just the people in the room but you know everybody else in the kingdom's going to be talking about it for like a week oh yeah because i mean there's no walls in that throne room it's just very open yeah people can just walk in there there's just like a bunch of random people in there too in that like in the first time we see the throne room it's pretty empty but like in in this scene in particular it's just like got a bunch of random citizens in it so you know not not ideal for glimmer i feel like somebody who already feels like 
she is being belittled and embarrassed by her mom in front of the kingdom that she's supposed to lead one day. Right, this is not helping that. Uh, one more Angela thing that I think is very cute is she she likes Bo a lot. She does. It's Listen, can you blame her? The boy is good. He's, he's a good boy. Angela seems to have a lot more trust in him, in his judgment of character, than she does Glimmers, which is interesting. It is, and that's... I, I, I'm interested to see kind of where where that ends up going cuz uh, cuz i feel like i feel like that might have um reasoning behind it oh for sure is there anything else we needed to hit here cuz i think ultimately i feel like that was all the big the big ticket items do you have anything else you wanted to add before we uh end up crossing over the break i don't think so this is a, this was a little bit of a lighter episode for the most part a lot of sort of esoteric lore being dropped some setups for later in the season with the princesses and such mm-hmm. uh well okay there is one scene we should actually talk about and it's the end scene where shira uh swears her fealty to the rebellion yes actually i was just thinking that because there is quite a bit there i think um she adora has been spending the entire episode trying to become Shira and then not it doesn't work. We all every series has to have an episode where the protagonist tries to power up and it just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean it's a staple of the magical girl genre, really. There's a lot of there's a lot of very very funny voice work in <laughs> yeah. uh in that section there where she's just sort of trying out all sorts of different pronunciations and and intonations of for the honor of Grey Skull. <laughs> I I'm I'm pretty partial to Honor Gray Skull blah blah blah. That that one might yes. be my favorite. Uh, and it's only when she decides to fight for a cause that she feels confident that she she manifests the Shira right. Like she she decides what she needs to do, what what she has to do here, and then she is able to do it. Yeah, exactly. It seems like it's. Her ability to manifest Shira seems to be largely based on, largely based on the need of the situation, and specifically, I think the emotional need of it. Yes, it's very tied into her emotion. Uh, I really like the scene where she walks up to the, uh, the throne room. There, I think it's a very, it's a very nice sort of interaction that she and Angela have. Yeah, it's it's actually it's a very powerful little scene there like visually and um audioly. The um the the sound cue actually that they use um for Shira kind of entering the room I thought was a really nice touch and uh the way that she kind of introduces herself to uh to Angela is very interesting. Um both because, uh, one, Angela seems to already kind of be familiar with, uh, with the concept of She-Ra, at least. Um, Glimmer is about to introduce She-Ra, but she finishes her sentence before she can even say it. And she seems to know a little bit about the first ones and what She-Ra is and what She-Ra is supposed to do. Yes, it seems like kind of one of those things that's been relegated to myth in a way that really only people 
uh, who have who have studied it or been around long enough to have heard it um, would know. Right, and there's a lot to to be said about the the kind of Adora seems to take to this responsibility pretty swiftly. Yeah, once she kind of learns a little bit about it. Yeah, she kind of really throws herself into this uh, situation uh, wholeheartedly a little bit. She talks to a weird old lady for a little bit, and frankly, Madame Raz doesn't give very good advice a lot of the time. No, Um, not really. (laughs) And she just sort of decides, alright, this is what I have to do. This is what I need to do. This is sort of the thread of destiny, if you will. Is it what she wants to do? I don't know. Hmm. I wonder if that'll be a theme. No. Themes? What are themes? Ah. I think this is some kind of 8th grade book report? Uh, could be. Man, if 8th graders were doing book reports on Shira, it'd be a better world. That'd be a very good curriculum. Um, But one last little note before we enter the spoiler zone. I love the the sort of shot of of bone glimmer hugging her and her just sort of shedding a few tears. Yeah. It's very sweet. Like the, you know, welcome to Bright Moon, but for real this time and she feel and like everyone's cheering in the background and she feels like very legitimately appreciated and cared for and it's just it, the most polar opposites to the way that things kind of operated in the fright zone. You know, she isn't just, oh, you know, these are two people who kind of like me. This is like, oh, this is a lot of people who seem to really like me. Which, let's draw that parallel real quick between that scene and Catra's ending in this episode. Because I think you will find that they are mirroring each other quite a bit. Uh, They are. Both of them are kind of crowning ceremonies, almost. Yeah, a little bit. Like, Like, Angela is kind of, I mean, almost essentially knighting. Adora a little bit like I like she doesn't really do like the the like knight sword thing but like it kind of has that that cadence to it and Hordak gives Katra the force captain badge himself yeah um which is like I don't think that's usually how it works no it's not and you know and actually even the scene with Hordak is also in its own way kind of a knighting ceremony you know she's kneeled um rises to to take the the presented bauble of responsibility yeah so i'm sure we will uh see lots of more parallels between those two as the season goes on but for now i think that will do it on our discussion of season one episode three raz yes and i am very excited to talk about some of the stuff in the spoiler zone before we go to the spoiler zone i'd just like to remind everyone uh, that you can find us on Twitter at Podcast of Power. Email us any sort of maybe if you have spoiler questions, it would be wiser to email us at uh, podofpower at gmail.com. Um, no questions for this week, but that's fine because we have plenty of more to discuss over here in the spoiler zone. Indeed. See you on the other side.
So, Angela is an interesting character because on your first watch through, I don't think I paid a lot of attention to her because she just seemed to kind of be the the she was the queen of bright moon. There was not a lot to to me at least to really dig into. Uh, and then she died. Yeah, then she died. It's it's interesting because she kind of fills that she kind of fills that role of like the the head good guy, the like the 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 good witch of the west or whatever a little bit, you know. She's not the most present um compared to a lot of the other characters and I think that's actually a very interesting and deliberate choice, you know. She's positioned very explicitly at the end there as like I was a coward. I never I I could never stand up for anything. I'm the reason the Princess Alliance dissolved. This battle I led went disastrously and I couldn't accept the responsibility of it and I just let everything sort of crumble away because it was easier than looking at what you'd done. Yeah, and then I think there was also, like, the level of, um, you know, she also had this uh, this angle of cowardice in that she was so afraid of being responsible for losing another uh, one of her family, her own daughter. You know, she lost her husband, you know, due to, at least in her mind, her bad decisions. You know, she doesn't want to ever feel that hurt again and you know she's willing to do anything um to make sure that she doesn't have to experience that pain again even at the expense of glimmer's autonomy and uh and happiness and the rebellion as a whole like oh yeah she she splits everything up and it all comes to a grinding halt for a good long while there yeah, like, this episode is really, I think, the first time you get, like, a really solid glimpse into just how bad things are. Like, the Horde is completely uncontested in just laying siege to the Whispering Woods. Like, they are just tearing it to shreds with a bunch of crab claw tanks, and nobody seems to care or even be aware of it. And, you know, I think that that really, you know, it's kind of a a very non-subtle, like, uh, poking a hole in the facade, almost literally. Right, we see them blow up a bunch of stuff in the first episode, but that doesn't really, like, that doesn't necessarily explain the dynamics of this conflict much at all. They just blew up a town. Here you see a lot more clearly that the Horde is, is, is sort of on this very slow encroach of the Whispering Woods, which is the last remaining natural barrier uh, to the rest of the Rebellion. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, you, and you'll see, like, moving forward, right, that's like the Rebellion's entire MO at this point, is like, hey, here's a natural barrier. We're just going to hide behind that and hope nothing bad happens. And as it turns out, that's a really poor decision because eventually somebody's going to figure out how to get past it. You know, even even um Mermista's kingdom, Selenius. So Selenius even, like the great gate of Selenius, the thing that is preventing 
the Horde Navy from basically invading the rest of the planet, you know, and they are relying so heavily on this very singular fortification, but there's no, there's no real effort to try and do anything beyond just kind of holding the line and really barely even that they just they just really aren't aren't interested in it and i think again a lot of that's you know angela that's that's kind of her her thing she ended up driving everyone else into their respective homes and kind of influenced them to do the same thing she's doing just kind of sit back let things happen defend your home turf and just plug your ears don't worry about it everything's fine i'm sure it's her her thinking back on her final scene now it's very interesting how she comes to that point as a character because it's it's a very it's a big decision and she also knows that like she's not coming back she's leaving glimmer alone in this world yeah as far as she knows micah is dead and she's as good as dead if she does this. Yeah. Like she's she will be unable to come back. But the reason she can take that jump there is because she knows Adora is going to look after her. Like she says so very explicitly and like her last her last words are take care of each other. Exactly. She you know, in that moment she has the the feeling that her job her self-appointed her self-appointed duty to take care of glimmer to protect glimmer um she feels that you know her friends are going to be there for her and she doesn't need to she doesn't need to be the one in the driver's seat anymore you know she can she can have that level of trust in in adora and even in glimmer to take care of themselves to take care of each other let's talk a little bit about adora here yes because there is a kind of adora's character arc is not quite as apparent as catra's throughout the entire series i don't think it's not but my god i love adora's arc so much miss steven miss stevenson really did that for me personally right you know you you think there's so much focus put on Catra's self-destruction spiral and and Glimmer's sort of impatience and impertinence and how that can affect her that you 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 on first watch you sort of forget about that Adora also has a lot of problems as well and then season 5 happens and then you think about the rest of the show and go oh yeah no it really really recontextualizes everything i think that like all three of the uh the the main girls here all have their own self-destruction spirals that they go through um and to to varying degrees adora's is definitely the quietest because almost all of her self-destruction is completely internalized it is fully inside herself and is like it only really begins to start affecting other people at the very end when she is at a point 
where she is being pushed to literally sacrifice her life um, in a way that that shouldn't be necessary and ultimately ends up not being necessary you know she's being pushed in that direction and that that's really the moment that i think she's given the space to understand uh what kind of mental position she's been put in here uh because up to that point everyone was kind of just encouraging this mentality this atlas complex of feeling like she's the only one who can save uh etheria she's the only one who can bring balance to plant she's the only one who can you know make sure that the the princess alliance uh comes back together like like she's the key to all of it and no matter how much sacrifice she has to put in that's okay because it's for the greater good and having that arc that arc is addressed in this episode which was crazy to me. I have not. I did not expect to see it come up this early. But when, when, uh, when Raz is showing uh, Adora the kind of Fern Gully situation, and she goes, you know, like, you know, what, what do you think, right? Like that, that theme of what do you think? What do you want? What is gonna, you know, what do you feel? You know, that coming up so early in the show, I think, is really, really good. And um, it really sets the tone moving forward, even though it's, like, pretty subtle here. Like, you kind of have to catch it on the rewatch, I think. It's it's portrayed a little bit more triumphantly here than it is at the end, because this is, like, the call to action. This is the, this is the call to adventure part of the hero's journey, and we aren't necessarily expecting it to go the way that it does because she's not being she's being asked to fight for a cause that she does believe in mm-hmm. and, and she does decide to do this but people will ask more and more of her as the show goes on until it becomes extremely apparent that she won't she just can't say no to that stuff she can't she can't refuse take, the call she cannot refuse the call there was no refusal of the call for adora she just goes along with it the only i think the only uh exception there is light hope yeah she shatters the sword she does that's that's the only time that she refuses the call to action but i think that that's because it conflicts with the call to action that she joined in the first place like she's not she didn't become shira to balance the planet she became shira to help her friends to help these people who are being harmed and oppressed uh she became shira to defend people not use them as weapons and i think that her turning against light hope is a really important step for her but it's not the moment where she realizes that she can refuse the call because to her that's not her refusing it it is her simply um re reasserting it um under a new context right and i think there's a lot of stuff in the portal episodes as well because adora is i think almost ready to to stop that portal right like she's ready to sacrifice herself 
for that portal, and Angela has to step in and say, no, the, you, you should not have to do this. Yeah, no, she I will do she this. was fully ready to to uh to sacrifice her life um in in the in that scene and i think that's like i think um angela recognizing that and understanding that there's actually uh there's a line in it and i wish i knew exactly the way it was worded because i think it is mirrored in uh the heart part too because um angela asks uh adora you know what is going to happen to you when you yeah she's like what is going to happen to you when um when she talks about going to uh pull the sword out of the portal and it's said actually with almost the same cadence um that that katra uh says the same line in the heart part too i mean those those two episodes are huge parallels to each other the angela and and shadow weaver death scenes especially yeah. Uh, but also the resolution of those. Yeah, those those episodes definitely mirror each other really well. The, the let's let's talk a little bit about those parallels between between our resident mom characters because oh boy, there are a lot of them. Very like there's there's even more direct parallels in particular between uh, the conversation Angela has in the portal part two and the conversation Shadow Weaver has with Adora in Failsafe. Not the heart part two. Failsafe. Because they are both sort of guiding Adora towards what they think is the better choice for her. But Angela is trying to guide Adora away from this all of this self-sacrifice stuff. She's trying to guide her back to her friends. She's trying to unburden her. Exactly. But Shadow Weaver is all about the world doesn't need Adora right now. It needs She-Ra. You, you have to cut everything loose. You just have to focus on this. You just have to be the hero. Exactly. You, you, you know, it's complete mirror, op- like complete opposites in, in that in that regard just like if if anything i feel like that's that's kind of the thing there with the way the way angela like is the one to pull the sword out of the portal in that sense like she she's telling adora no you you are not the hero here you you shouldn't have to be the hero you should you should be able to live your life like you know i'm the one who should be making this sacrifice i'm the leader i'm the queen i'm the one who was the coward i'm the one who stayed behind and all of this is ultimately my responsibility and and she takes that responsibility while shadow weaver kind of doesn't like in the in the very end she sort of takes that responsibility but but she it... doesn't necessarily because one of the last things she says is she makes it clear to catcher you have to get adora to the heart the plan, it, it still must go as planned. That's true. Like, she isn't necessarily stopping Adora from doing this thing. She doesn't want to stop Adora from doing this. No, what she wants is to make sure that they can get there. Exactly. Like, she's she's still she's still like... 
she is still focused and she's still laser focused and committed on the idea of Adora sacrificing herself for the greater good here. Um, and you know, she, she's willing to sacrifice, um, herself to make sure her plan goes, uh, accordingly. And, um, but there is another layer there, right? Yeah. Because it's not just that. In fact, honestly, the, the parallel between that scene is not Shadow Weaver and Adora. The, the parallel is Shadow Weaver and Catra. Oh, that's, yeah, the, um, that's a very good point, actually. She's not talking to Adora. Adora isn't in that scene until the very end. The one she's talking to is Catra, and, she's the, and she, she tells Catra, like, this is only the beginning for you. You know, I'm proud of you. Yeah. All of this stuff. I think that something I've seen um, a few people talk about is the idea that that sort of final set of moments um, that Shadow Weaver has uh, not being that genuine. And I think that even in her most candid, she's still conniving and scheming oh, yeah. and plotting and and you see that of course in the very last thing she ever says you know you're welcome you know that you know she you know you you know thank me later for saving your lives you know and that sort of thing so like she's she's still shadow weaver she's never not gonna be shadow weaver but um similar to the way that she got very very candid in the prison episodes um i think that her going her taking the the mask off right both uh metaphorically and literally in that scene i think i think the things that she is uh she is saying and things that she's doing here are actually quite genuine like that is that is her genuine emotion uh coming through in in that instance right there's so many like shadow weaver is always playing third dimensional chess even if it's only against herself but at the same time, it's she's not constantly putting on a fake persona. Like you say, she does take off the mask, and that does give us a visual clue that, like, no, there is something here. Even if she is still trying to drive them towards the heart, even if she is still trying to, like, get her plan to go off without a hitch, there is there are truth in her words somewhere. Yeah, buried, buried under 17 layers of of plotting you know and 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 scheming there is there is a kernel of genuine emotional like care for for Katra like there like that is like that's there she has it it's just and i think that that it's a really really important thing to do that i think that i think it would have been very easy to make that come across as Shadow Weaver being redeemable for the actions uh, that she's taken. But they didn't really go that route. I don't think that Shadow Weaver was redeemed. I think that I think that it really I think it makes actually her irredeemability more genuine and believable that her very real modes of coercion and abuse um, are employed by people who care about you. 
that and that it always is. You know, it's it comes from a place of love, even if it's a completely twisted and warped beyond all recognition version of love. It's still that's still what it is, and that's like having that represented in Shadow Weaver's character. I think is really interesting. Right. It's key that Catra uh, and Adora never have a moment where they say, where they forgive Shadow Weaver, or they say, oh, we were wrong about her. No, the moment they have is right after she dies, they do have a moment to just sort of silently mourn. They don't say anything. They're still mourning, effectively, their mother. Like, their mom just died right in front of them, sacrificing herself, just, just exploded. exploded. Literally exploded. Uh, probably kind of traumatizing to see that, I would imagine. Uh, might need some therapy for that one. But uh, but yeah, like their, their mom just died. And as much as they both hated her, and as much as they deserve to hate her, as much as she has every... She has presented absolutely every opportunity to be hated... You know that that's a very that's a very powerful kind of moment. You know, and I thought it was I thought it was very like I thought it was a very like touching scene where they do have that silent moment of mourning for someone who was an irredeemable piece of garbage who did absolutely nothing but ruin people's lives ruining people specifically as as adora like calls her out on like specifically like you know she says you ruin people you take away any chance they could ever have to be happy you take everything away and you know to serve your 17th dimensional mind games you know and uh but but yeah like it it's it's a very well done arc ultimately i think we need to hit on one more thing here speaking of all of this self-sacrifice stuff here in the spoiler zone there's one more character i think we need to talk about in regards to that and that's mara oh for sure well mara and also like raz's time nonsense a little bit right it, it's not apparent until that season four episode i don't think there's a few clues here and there but Raz is like unstuck from time. Yeah, like a little bit a little bit of a like causality loop situation going on. I think actually at one point she even has this line in that season 4 episode where she's like she's talking to Mara and she's like, "Oh, is this the first time? It's been so long since it was the first time." Kind of implying that like not only is she kind of stuck in a time loop, but like it's a time loop that repeats. Yeah, like it's repeating um out of order. Yeah, there's there's no real rhyme or reason to these shifts. They just seem to happen. Yeah. And so there's no wonder she has a sort of tenuous grip on reality. Her reality is changing seemingly every other second. Um or at least like Maybe that episode was a particularly severe example due to the day that it was. Yeah, kind of a bad day. But she's probably bopping around left and right. And there's a lot of things introduced about Mara here. This is the first time we ever hear about her before uh, Light Hope starts spinning her lies about how she was a uh, she was a crazed 
madwoman who destroyed all of the stars, where Raz in particular says she was brave and loyal and she was afraid, because that is a very key part of Mara's sacrifice, I think. These, um, a lot of Adora's arc is caught up in chasing the idea of Mara that lives in her head, right? Yeah. She's heard about Mara through Light Hope a lot. The, the, the original She-Ra, she did all this stuff, she messed everything up. You have to make it right. And it isn't until the end when she realizes that, like, no, Mara, Mara sacrificed herself because she didn't want anything else like this to happen again. She kind of goes through this realization of, of you know... Uh, Mara being like Mara is this symbol really of her destiny of what of what she needs to never become and then when she finally gets a picture of who Mara really is it starts to call into question a lot of ideas that she has about um what her destiny is supposed to be like we and we we touched on a little earlier about like the idea of how um, her turning against Light Hope isn't necessarily the the turning point in her own like internal like Atlas complex arc, but it is I think the moment in which she really starts to ask herself a lot of very important questions like why am I doing this? Um, what what is you know what is my outcome here? What is you know what is the path forward? What is what she off for? What is the point of it all that that last scene that she has with mara in the heart part two is fantastic and i don't even necessarily want to talk too much about that yet i want to save all this mara discussion for when yes she starts showing i up. will say though that scene is ah uh, beautiful gorgeous amazing flawless perfect it's it's it is again again thank you Noelle Stevenson, you made this just for me. My, it's like my birthday. It's fantastic. I think I think that's all we need to touch on for the spoiler zone for this episode. Uh, I think so too. I yeah, I thought that was that was interesting episode. It's like it's it's one of the smaller, more contained episodes, but it gives us a lot of material to kind of dig into a little bit uh, moving forward. It's so interesting that they start this stuff with Adora so early on that it, but it's it's very stealthy. They don't make a point to look at this to interrogate this part of Adora's character yet. Everything is going smoothly for now. Yeah, they're they're building this. They're building the world's most precarious house of cards, one card at a time, and it's just a delight to watch it happen. And we will continue to watch it happen in the, the next few episodes. I don't remember a lot about... I think the next one's the perf... The next one's the Perfuma one, right? I don't remember anything about the Perfuma episode. I don't remember a... a thing. Uh, it's It's been a while. I remember I remember there being a lot of uh, shots of, uh, of of She-Ra, like, flexing, which was very funny. Um, That's true. There's a lot of shots of She-Ra flexing and people putting flower crowns on people. Yes, but uh, we'll get to that in the next episode, which uh, we're probably going to record in about two minutes. Uh, but for you, it'll be another week. Until next time, I have been one of your hosts, Nero. 
and I've been the other host, Jane. And we don't have an official sign-off yet, No, but we'll probably figure it out. <laughs> we're working on that. We're, all, we're always growing and learning and just like our, figuring things out. Just like our favorite characters from She-Ra the cartoon. Just like the characters. So until next time, catch you later. Catch you later.